The following program contains frank discussions of mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Polyamory, pedophilia, and why we say, oh God, during sex. Put the kids to bed. It's time for Ask Science Mike After Dark. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, a weekly program where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This week is Ask Science Mike After Dark, where we tackle banned questions that usually aren't allowed in spiritual communities. This week we're mainly talking about sexuality, and there's some pretty dark themes, uh, so be ready for that. We'll return with the normal episode next week, but for now, let's get it started. Our first question this week comes from the email inbox, and it reads, Hey Mike, my question is why do so many of us, even atheists, speak God's name during carnal activities? What's the psychology behind this? Thanks, Juliet. Well, it's interesting because swearing isn't just fun. It's a nearly universal human activity. It transcends languages and cultures. People everywhere swear today and yesterday and pretty much as long as we've had uh, recorded history. Swearing is, of course, very taboo in the Christian West, although it's becoming much less so. Uh, But the taboo only increases its allure. Swearing is most common in cultures where it's frowned upon or restricted in some way. For example... In medieval times, you could get the death penalty for swearing, and yet swearing was incredibly common. Whereas if you look at contemporary secularized cultures where there is very little taboo against swearing, and its frequency declines along with it. Uh, It seems that the more social pressure there is against swearing, the more alluring that it is. Now, there are five major themes that researchers have found in swearing that are common across cultures. The most common type of swearing is religious swearing or swearing related to religion. You can probably see where I'm going to go with this in the answer to this question. Uh, The second most common type of swearing is scatological. People love to make jokes about poop. Uh, That's not just our toddlers. Even adults uh, like to throw around poop-related swear words and words related to the parts of our bodies that make and release poop. The third most common type is sexual organ swearing. People use that a lot. Um, Interestingly enough, it seems that in uh, modern America, swearing related to female genitals is more taboo than male genitals. Uh, The fourth most common type of swearing is sexual activities or swearing about sexual activities. And the fifth most common type, of course, is swearing about someone's mother. (laughs) Which just... I actually, I'm reading this really, you know, dry academic report, uh, getting this material, which is linked in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. And uh, I laughed when I got to that. Everybody loves a your mama joke. Now, we swear for all kinds of reasons. It's used for comedic effect. It's used to provide nuance. And swearing is typically um, more related to the context of the word than the word itself. And the usage of a word can make it a swear word or not. But when we talk about this particular question, we're thinking about a specific type of swearing. And that's something called a reactive interjection. So when we have pain or surprise or sex or other really intense stimulus, uh, we can 
use language in a way that's unconscious or unintentional, you can actually say something that surprises you. It's independent of your consciousness and your agency. And so when you consider the fact that religious swearing is the most universal type of swearing across cultures, it is also typically associated with a lot of taboo. Uh, When our brains experience some intense stimulus and want to express that or release that, even necessarily independent of our decision-making process, well, of course we use the most taboo, powerful word we have in our vocabulary, the name of God. People also typically use, what, scatological terms uh, in, in sex? Now, this is partially a learned behavior. We, as we'll hear in a later question, uh, humans tend to be especially vocal in sex, especially females. And this is something we hear, we hear it in media, we hear it in firsthand encounters. And so we learn these patterns, but they are executed on a lower level of linguistic expression than our usual thoughtful speech. Uh, This is an example of lower brain functions interacting with our speech centers in the brain and the left temporal lobe and creating unconscious speech. Uh, So the reason that we... I guess, swear during sex is because it is an intense and pleasurable stimulus that our brains are trying to express in some way, especially females of the species. And uh, I don't necessarily view that as a bad thing. So there you go. The science of swearing and sex. Our next question isn't just one question. It's hundreds of questions. It's become almost 10% of all the questions submitted to the program. And those questions started after the first Ask Science Mike After Dark, which was episode six. And uh, man, there are a lot of questions about masturbation. Here is just a small sampling. Hi, Mike. I finished listening to your monogamy masturbation marijuana episode. I definitely understand where you're coming from as far as the health benefits of masturbation, but I also think that it can be a quick stepping stone to porn because I doubt many guys masturbate without lusting. I'm not saying it's impossible to masturbate without doing so, but I feel like it's probably very uncommon. What do you think about this, etc.? Another question. The Bible speaks much about sexual transgressions, but it doesn't mention masturbation. Is masturbation a sin if it doesn't involve porn or lust? Is it okay to focus solely on satisfying that need? Is it even a need? Uh, And the Bible does mention uh, masturbation. Look up Onan. Anyway, another one. Hi, Mike. I just listened to the Science Mike episode on masturbation and pornography. I applaud you for taking on this topic, and I'm grateful for your commitment to science-backed, grace-filled responses. I also thought about how a decade ago it would have made no sense to me to think about masturbating without the use of pornography. In fact, it has only been the last few years I've been able to separate the two. Uh, I've worked hard to let go of my old friend pornography and learned new, healthier ways to practice masturbation without it. Another one. Hey, Mike, I listened to episode six about sex and masturbation, and everything you said really resonated with me because they were the same thoughts I've been having for years, despite my very religious upbringing in the Bible Belt. I did have one question for you, though, about masturbation. You said masturbation shouldn't be a shameful act for Christians and that it can be a healthy way to control one's libido. But you also said that lustful images like pornography can be damaging to a person's psyche and sex life. Maybe it's just me, but I find I have a hard time masturbating without the use of some kind of pornography. 
assuming there's a right way to masturbate, what is the right way to masturbate? And these questions go on and on and on. There are hundreds. It seems we've hit a nerve in our society. And by the way, these questions came from men and from women. Now, they did seem to be most common to the Bible Belt, the the Southeast especially, uh, when people would describe their struggles. Something is broken in the way Christians think about sex, and it's causing a lot of stress, a lot of concerns. And for those of you who may question the way that I approach sex and sexuality but listen to the program anyway, you have to understand this is one of the wedges that causes people to turn their back on the faith. So let's talk a little bit more about masturbation. Is it a need? No, you you won't die without masturbating. You need air, uh, you need food, you need water, uh, you don't need sexual stimulus. You will not die without sex or orgasm or anything. But is it a drive? Absolutely. One of the most powerful human drives is the sex drive. So even though we don't need sex, our brains and physiology place a level of urgency on it that is similar to our biological needs. So it's normal to think about sex a lot. It's normal to desire sex. It's healthy to want sex. Now, the problem is, as I say very often, both the Christian and secular approaches to sexuality have limitations. So let's talk about a few things. Porn. What is porn? I think of porn as media with extreme stimulations and sexual content. Uh, It's all about titillating and creating, you know, a high amount of sexual energy. And that could be images or video and commonly is, but it can also be text. You can read pornography. You can consume literature porn. Uh, now, if we talk about lust, and so many questions bring up lust, to me, lust is when you fixate on your sexual attraction and in the process objectify another person and you obsess over sexual attraction. That's what lust is. To simply be attracted to someone is not to lust towards them. You're supposed to be attracted to people. That's how more humans get made. And if you believe in God as I do, God made us that way. God made us to find other people attractive. Uh, Masturbation is stimulating your own sex organs, generally with an intent to orgasm. And it's important to think and understand there is absolutely nothing wrong with sexual attraction. There's absolutely nothing wrong with sexual organs period. You're not dirty. You're not gross. It's not shameful. Especially common in the emails I get are women who are uncomfortable with their own sexuality because of their upbringing. And this is one of the reasons why women have a much more difficult time in America achieving orgasm than men. It's conditioned. Your sex drive isn't bad. So how do we tame that beast? How do we avoid the taboo around sexuality and the intensity of the sex drive becoming a destructive things in our lives? Number one, there are unconscious elements at play here. You don't consciously decide to be attracted to someone. You don't consciously decide to notice someone walking by. 
But the way your energies are spent is a matter of what you feed. There's a, a metaphor I like to think about brains called the two wolves analogy, where you can imagine yourself as, as being composed of two wolves. One of those wolves is brutal and fast and violent. That would be your limbic system. The other wolf is playful and thoughtful, but not as strong as the other wolf. And the question is, which one you feed, which one you pay attention to? So when you see a member of this gender that you're attracted to, what do you do with that? How do you fixate upon it? Okay, that constant process of noticing people, thinking about people, even fantasizing about people really informs the way you respond to sexual stimulus. And that's the problem. Today, masturbation is almost always linked to porn addiction. Internet porn is so available and so accessible and so HD streaming to you live right now that people literally can't imagine what it's like to masturbate without lust. And remember my definition of lust, fixating on attraction, objectifying another, and obsessing over sexual attraction. If you can't imagine masturbating without pornography, you're probably addicted to porn. And you need to take steps in your life to detoxify. And as you do, guess what? Your biology will do what your biology is supposed to do. Your sex drive is strong and it doesn't need this kind of stimulus, okay? If you break off porn long enough, your sex drive is going to recover. It's going it's to become more normative, more healthy. And listen, I can remember being younger. I can actually remember being a teenager in Sunday school, in high school, and hearing Older men who are teaching Sunday school when sexual topics would come up talk about how, listen, it does get better. This becomes more manageable as you get older. And I thought that sounded insane. But now from the viewpoint of 36, I get it. <laughs> the My body doesn't put nearly the same neurochemical impetus on attraction and sexuality as it once did. And I can appreciate sex more as a result. And I hope that awareness that part of what's happening is your body is in the process, uh, for, for those of you listeners who are younger, of um, figuring out what sex means, how to find sex, how to acquire sex. You're at a stage where in human history, uh, you are the most likely to be producing children. It's normal to have these very strong sexual urges. So how do you masturbate in health? One, don't objectify people, women or women, men are men. They're not objects for sexual gratification. When you contemplate the whole of a person, it's more difficult to obsess uh, over their specific physicality. Two, I would avoid internet pornography. It seems to be very common that people who consume internet porn consume more porn and, and move toward an addictive state. I think it's a, a thing best left alone. Uh, now, if you mess up, you open a web browser and whatever, don't beat yourself up. The guilt cycle makes it worse. Simply over time, consume less. Find relationships with people that if they can help hold you accountable and you can talk about those things and detoxify them and de-shame them, it will help. Um, and then get to a point where um, you don't masturbate necessarily out of habit or boredom, uh, but you know, out of out of need, out of drive, and then it should be easier to not necessarily have to have even your own internal pornography in order to achieve some kind of climax or orgasm. So, you know, some of this is kind of tough for me to talk about. Uh, I'm older. I'm married in a monogamous relationship. Uh, my wife and I have a tremendous uh, sex life. I just 
I don't have a taste for really masturbation anymore. I'd rather have sex. But I understand not everybody is in that situation. And that's why I say I'm so passionate about people knowing it's okay to masturbate. Uh, I think it's a better alternative to promiscuous sex or unprotected sex or or guilt-ridden sex. Uh, For people whose sexual purity is important to them, I think masturbation is probably a fantastic technique for maintaining that purity and and not having... uh, you know, the temptations they worry about. So that's a lot on masturbation. Hopefully that's enough to stem some of the email tide. If not, I know you guys will continue to email me questions about masturbation. Maybe we'll just have to have a masturbation segment on every (laughs) uh, Ask Science Mike After Dark. I don't know. But there's some more on masturbation for you. This question comes from the email inbox and it reads, Hey Science Mike, I have a question regarding statements that you made regarding monogamy. I have heard the statement before in defending polyamory that an individual who desires the best and happiness for their significant other should be comfortable with their significant other having more intimate and sexual relationships if that's what their significant other desires. This troubles me. Because, in a sense, makes the idea of monogamy appear selfish by implying that an individual is being selfish by desiring their significant other to love and have sex with them exclusively. Is this the case? Does polyamory, in a sense, result in greater individual happiness? Is monogamy selfish? Thanks, Nick. Well, this is a tough question for me to answer. Number one, because I'm uh, exclusively monogamous and pretty happy with that. Uh, And also because I know I have uh, readers who identify as polyamorous and as Christians, and which other listeners uh, of this program are Christians who don't believe that polyamory is compatible with Christianity. So this is quite a rabbit hole for the program. And uh, one I don't think I can give a great answer to in five minutes. So I'm going to focus on a couple of points. One, does polyamory in a sense result in greater individual happiness? Well, I wasn't sure scientifically, so I did research. I usually only give myself about two minutes to research answers for the program. But this was a a multi-day examination of data. Um, and I uh, went to a go-to book uh, of mine, which is Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan on the topic, as well as a TED Talk that he gave. And then I also searched a lot of scientific literature and studies and papers. And um, what I found surprised me, I'll be honest. Science doesn't paint a particularly dark picture for polyamory, and here's why. Human beings are apes, right? That's where we exist in the taxonomy or the categorization of life on earth and genetically we are closer to chimpanzees and bonobos than elephants are to different varieties of elephants so a chimp is not only closer to humans than an asian elephant is to an african elephant a chimp is closer to humans than a chimp is to other apes same with bonobos if you kind of look at chimp and bonobo behavior (laughs) they have pretty promiscuous uh, overlapping sexual webs and anthropologists believe the kind of sexual war of the sexes built around monogamy is probably linked to the rise of agriculture 
Uh, and even when we look at contemporary hunter-gatherer societies, they tend to be very egalitarian. They share resources, including sex. Now, this doesn't mean promiscuity. It means that these cultures have overlapping sexual relationships. They do pair bond. They just each individual is a part of multiple pairings. It's not like sex with strangers or hookup culture or those kinds of things. So uh, Christopher Ryan uses the term sexual omnivore to describe human behavior. And I think it's a great descriptor because humans are natural omnivores, but we can choose to be vegetarian. And in fact, you can make a decent argument that vegetarianism is healthier for people than uh, a, a traditional human diet. Um, but just because you choose to be a vegetarian doesn't mean that bacon doesn't smell good anymore. And I think that's a fantastic way to think about monogamy. Just because you've chosen to have an exclusive pair bond doesn't mean that you stop being attracted to other individuals, which is something we tend to freak out about. Now, if you look biologically to kind of back this up, during their uh, times of uh, sexual swelling, Female chimps and bonobos will mate with up to a dozen males per day, multiple times per hour, you know, as many as four times per hour uh, during that time period. They are uh, extremely available during this time compared to other mammals in a menstrual cycle, uh, but not nearly as available as human females. Humans can have sex all through the menstrual cycle and even post-menstrual and menopause, which is almost unprecedented in uh, the animal kingdom. Humans can also have sex a thousand times per birth, which is a statistic remarkably similar to chimps and bonobos. Uh, Other apes, it's closer to 12 times per birth. So we have sex very, very often uh, versus animals that tend to be more exclusive in their pair bonding. Human males have external testicles, And that's for temperature control. And why do you need temperature control for your testicles? If you need to make a lot of sperm. Why? Because you need to ejaculate very often. Um, Basically, the more ways you dice it, the more science supports the idea that humans are somewhat polyamorous by nature. What really shocked me is as I looked at specific studies, and let me tell you, they are limited. There's not a lot out there. But in the studies that have been done, among people that self-identify as polyamorous, STD rates aren't any higher than the general population. And kids don't actually associate any significant trauma uh, if their parents are polyamorous. Um, They appear to be as happy as any other child. Now, this really went against my intuition on what I might find when I investigated this issue. Does polyamory result in greater individual happiness? Well, potentially for some people. Um, Now, there's all kinds of complexities with polyamory. One, it is not accepted in our society, even among most progressives. It's very, very taboo. Uh, So there is a risk of being ostracized socially. Uh, There are all kinds of legal confusions. Our entire society is built around pair bonding in terms of estate distribution and property ownership. There's a lot of complexities there. Um, Now, let's be honest. Monogamous people statistically aren't that monogamous. Uh, So I would certainly view polyamory, being honest about multiple sexual relationships, as being superior than infidelity from a monogamous relationship, which happens quite often. Affairs, extramarital affairs, uh, cheating, all those sorts of things. So if I look at this through kind of my secularist ethics database, my, my matrix for making decisions, does polyamory produce suffering? Well, only uh, in the case where one of the partners is not willing 
or there's poor communication skills. So it gets a decent pass there. Is consent involved? If both members of a relationship are polyamorous and are open to open relationships, then you have consent. Now that said, what the question described is you have a polyamorous person in a relationship with a monogamous person, and the polyamorous person is saying that it's selfish to want monogamy, and I could not disagree more. I want a monogamous relationship, my wife wants a monogamous relationship, and we are monogamous together, and that works very well. If a polyamorous person is dating a polyamorous person, and they all agree, I'm not going to judge that. It's not, it's not me to decide whether that's right or wrong. And, you know, even in Christianity, certainly the New Testament uh, seems to strongly reinforce monogamy. The Old Testament, there's a lot of polygamy happening there. And I've heard people say it's an oversimplification of the text. But the fact is, you know, we have God himself speaking to Moses and describing the circumstances by which a man can take an additional wife who is the wife of someone slayed in war. Uh, So if God was against it, he certainly had an opportunity in that scripture to speak out. Uh, now, that's not how I read the Old Testament, but if you if you read it literally that way, you're going to get that. So, But I would say it's certainly fair to say that modern Christianity, and for most of the history of Christianity, uh, is a monogamous institution. Uh, if you're a polyamorous Christian, you read the Bible differently, that's with you and your faith community. <laughs> I'm not going to waste a lot of time worrying about that. But it is... I am going to say it is fine for someone to want to be in a monogamous relationship. So if you're dating someone and they say it's selfish for you to want monogamy, I guess they can believe that you probably shouldn't be in a relationship with that person. That person should probably find someone who's polyamorous and you should find someone who's monogamous. If you both can't agree on the terms of a relationship, then you don't have the foundation for a healthy relationship. Uh, And that's the key point. Relationships are hard enough as they are. And I've noticed people will get very desperate to maintain a particular relationship. But if you can't agree on structural issues like that, the healthiest thing is to amicably end the relationship. Not to try to convince someone who wants to be polyamorous to be monogamous. Whether you think it's moral or ethical or not is irrelevant. You can't control someone else. In the same way... Someone should not try to manipulate you into accepting polyamory if you are monogamous. I feel way out of my league answering this question. So before anybody uh, sends me an angry email telling me why I'm wrong, understand that uh, I really was afraid to even answer this because I'm a committed monogamous heterosexual male. So I can talk about the science of the fluidity of gender or orientation or uh, the science of, of why we're, you know, maybe as a species wired a bit towards polyamory. Um, <laughs> but it's, it doesn't describe my actual experience of uh, being a human being on this planet. I love my wife. That's just, I guess, how I'm wired too. Um, so if you'd like to learn more about this, I definitely recommend the book Sex at Dawn. Uh, look at the TED Talk I have in the show notes at AskScienceMike.com. You can learn more about the science of polyamory. Uh, This is something that's probably going to come up more as time goes on, as we uh, adopt a new sexual ethic in this country uh, that's, you know, less based on taboo and more based on individual freedom and liberty. That's one area I think that LGBT opponents are correct, is that uh, the process by which society embraces 
gay and lesbian and transgendered relationships uh, will ultimately lay the groundwork for polyamorous people to say, hey, what about us? And boy, is that going to be a fun national dialogue. <laughs> of course, uh, statistically, there are fewer polyamorous people than uh, LGBT folks, at least today, at least how we understand it. Like I said, this uh, science is is pretty thin, pretty sparse compared to other things I've tried to research. I hope that answer was helpful. The bottom line, is monogamy selfish? No, because relationships are a consensual agreement between two parties. And I think it's certainly fine to choose monogamy. Our final question also comes from the email inbox, and it reads, Hi, Mike. I was sexually abused by multiple family members during childhood. This has caused a lot of problems in my life, but one is worse than the others. I am attracted to children. To be clear, I have never molested a child, but I have sometimes searched the internet for images of children. I am always filled with disgust when I do this, and I hate myself for what I am. I know you'll tell me I should get help, but how can I do that? If anyone knew my secret, I would be unable to hold a job or have any friends. I'm so scared. Most of the time I want to die, and I have considered suicide on multiple occasions. What can I do? You have stumbled upon uh, one of our deepest fears and one of the things we fear most, the sexual exploitation of children. I want to start by applauding you for emailing me, for having the courage to reach out. I know that's incredibly frightening, and it's a good thing that you want to get some help and some insight and some advice And I feel incredibly unqualified to offer that advice. The second thing I want to thank you for is your restraint. Sexual urges are very powerful, and you've resisted those urges and never molested a child. And in doing so, you have broken a cycle of abuse that affected you. So the question is, how do you keep that up? Because so far, you've done the right thing. You can't help that you're attracted to children. You didn't choose that. Based on your message, it sounds like you find that repulsive. So a little science for you. Now, the science of of pedophilia is not well understood at all. Uh, We have seen some science that indicates it could be developmental, as in some biological basis. There appears to be some correlation in some cases with uh, trauma to the head before the age of 13. And in other cases, like yours, attraction to children is the result of being sexually victimized as a child. And I'm so sorry that you went through that. And whoever did that to you let you down in one of the worst ways possible. Despite the potential risks to you, I advise you to seek quickly the counsel of a qualified therapist. Now, the American psychological system, even the global psychological community, doesn't necessarily 
have a great handle on what to do with people who are attracted to children but have not acted on those urges and don't want to. Most of our justice system and our psychological profiles are built on people that have already victimized children. Um, You represent a responsible portion of a population that is despised. I don't know the steps you can take to be rehabilitated. I don't know anything about how to shift your desires uh, towards more appropriate venues. And uh, this is a, a situation where this is very intellectual for me. It's As soon as I figured out that other people could be sexually attractive, I was always attracted to the adult female form, which I think is a pretty normal way that humans develop. You just, you've got to get help. You can't shoulder it alone. You can't fight this battle by yourself. And I think the you know best place to start is a therapist that you can trust, that will understand, and you can communicate to the fact that you have never acted on these urges. I would probably also take the step to self-isolate from children. I'd avoid, obviously, spending a lot of time and building any kind of significant uh, relationship with a child because if pedophilia attraction is similar to normal attraction, then the time you spend with an individual is a huge factor in when you will act on um, or pursue relationships. So with adults, the adult of your chosen orientation or your chosen gender you spend the most time with tends to be the one you're the most attracted to. Uh, That's why as a married heterosexual male, I spend most of my time uh, with my wife because that makes it much easier to uh, have a monogamous relationship because I remain attracted to her because of the time investment. So I hate to say this, but uh, you know, avoid creating relationships with the children. Um, avoid fixating on them. Definitely avoid the internet. Child pornography is illegal. It should be illegal. There are steep penalties for viewing or distributing child pornography uh, or for storing it. That could be life-destroying for you. So the the best thing I could say is you've got to go get help. Look around, um, maybe ask friends you know who've had therapists. Maybe work through a a university, but you've got to find someone who specializes in these sorts of issues and this sort of psychology. You know, probably your normal marriage and family therapist uh, is not where you should be. You need someone who specializes in in sexuality and perhaps even um, sexual disorders. And I don't say this a lot on the program. I don't know that I've ever said it, but I I don't know who you are. I don't have a name. I don't have an email address, but I'm going to pray for you because that's all I can do. All I can do is tell you the best of what I know and, uh, and pray for you. But I hope that not only are you able to resist these impulses on an ongoing basis, but my, my hope for you is that you could find fulfillment in a relationship with a consenting adult Um, that ultimately uh, leads you out of this cycle that started with people who exploited you. And you didn't choose that. You're a victim, and I admire your determination to not become a perpetrator. (music) 
Well, that's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. That's an After Dark edition where we talk this week exclusively about sexuality, I guess. Uh, If you have questions like those, send them in. We'll do another Ask Science Mike After Dark. We actually have a lot of After Dark questions already on file. Uh, And keep your questions coming. We need them to keep the program uh, alive, although we are absolutely crushed with great questions right now. I love it. I love the fact that there's gender diversity in our questions. There's racial diversity in our questions. That really gives me hope for this audience, that it really represents a broad spectrum of humanity, that lots of people are interested in open, honest conversations about science and faith. Now, I'd love to have a conversation like this in your local community. Um, so if you go to AskScienceMike.com and look in the upper right-hand corner, there's a button that says Book Mike. I would love to come to your church or your college or your conference to talk about difficult uh, themes in an open way, in an entertaining way, even a humorous way. That's that's what I love to do. So uh, if you'd like more information, just go to my website. You can submit questions using hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Or you can do what most people do and go to AskScienceMike.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and you can record a voice question and send it there. Or type a text question, uh, including anonymous questions. Now the show is listener supported. People keep this show alive by donating money to the program every month. Every single dollar helps. A lot of people give a dollar or $5 or $3 and I really appreciate that. I know money can be tight. You can uh, change or cancel pledges at any time. There's no commitment whatsoever. Now, people who donate to the program, I list them as a sponsor on the website. Some of them get early show access or even get to pick the questions that appear on the show. Uh, And some even get to guarantee they get a question on the show or become an executive producer. Now, money may be tight, uh, and if you really want to help the show, just give us a rating on iTunes, and I read all those reviews, and I really appreciate them. I didn't know how long a show uh, like this could be interesting, (laughs) and uh, the questions keep getting better and better. I don't know if my answers are getting better, but the program keeps growing, and it's growing because you're telling people, you're sending in questions, and you're making the show interesting. Um, and I'll keep doing that as long as you guys keep doing that. Now, Ask Science Mike is produced by Greg Nordeen, the amazing Canadian. I really appreciate the work he does there. I've got resources for every single question as well as links to Greg and Jeb in the show notes of this episode on AskScienceMike.com. And I'll see you guys next week. 